Welcome to the Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamelski talk about what was hot at the Tucson Gem Shows, Diamond Supplier News, and ChatGPT. Hey everyone, welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from LA, although I am not in my office this week. So if I sound a little more echoey, I apologize. I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and uh, jckonline.com, calling in from New York, New York, in my usual home studio, otherwise known as my son's bedroom. (laughs) Very glamorous. Very glamorous. Hi, Rob. Hi, how are you? Doing all right. Working from my mom's house this week. I just got home from London last night. It's uh, late Feb here, and I went to London for a, a whopping two days, which was you know not as bad as it sounds because I was able to work on the plane. And when you go for such a short time, you really don't adjust to the time difference. So even though it's an eight-hour time difference from LA, and I you know while I was there, you know you sort of kind of enter a fugue state for a little while, but. I slept great and I don't really anticipate having much jet lag. So I'd tell you more about what I was doing in London, but there's a strict embargo. Uh, All I can say is Mm. it has to do with Watch Inches and Wonders Geneva. And it was a watch brand that hosted a presentation in anticipation of what they're introducing in Geneva. And I can't even tell you what the watch brand is because I don't want to get in trouble. I'm not sure if I would, but let's not, let's not risk it. So there will be news and I certainly will have plenty of news. Uh, (laughs) Sure. Why not? Go ahead. Uh, Uh, Rolex. Nope. Casio? Not Casio. Not Casio. I got one for my bar, bar mitzvah many years ago. I mean, it's I was a, very proud of it. Digital watch. Tried and true. You know, there'll always be a place for Casio, always be a place for G-Shock and some of the sturdier quartz models made by the Japanese. You know, I cover Swiss primarily, but I promise you I'm not a snob about watches. I am a supporter of all kinds. So Casio all the way. So you just got back also from Tucson, I believe. I did. I, it's been a real four to six weeks of massive travel because there was a Vicenza and then immediately after Vicenza, there was Tucson. And I, I did want to tell you about the gem shows because clearly they're relevant to our listeners. And in general, those shows really depend so heavily on Christmas holiday, how the fourth quarter went for retailers and whether or not retailers are in need of restocking and finding new stones for whatever collections they're showcasing. And so there was a little bit of question mark hanging over the shows. You know, how would the holiday go, would retailers feel confident enough to set off again on, you know, more buying trips? And given the complications that kind of hover and continue to hover over the economy, everything from, you know, the specter of recession, which it feels like we've danced with now for five or six months and still not entirely clear what's going to happen there. Uh, Obviously, inflation, even if it's come down, still pretty significant. And last but certainly not least, the war in Ukraine, which as of this taping, we're one day away from the year anniversary, which, you know, a very, very somber milestone. So lots of complications still hanging over the economy. But given all that, Tucson was a really good set of shows for those who haven't been. And I think, Rob, you you haven't been, have you? I went once. You went once. So, so you might remember that it's not just one show. It is literally dozens of shows. This year, from what I'm told, there were 45 shows, down from a high of around 50 just before the pandemic. So you know, still a very vibrant atmosphere. And there were just lots and lots of designers there, tons. I I personally saw a huge amount of designers. And from what I'm told, there were teams from a lot of the French houses 
Louis Vuitton, Boucheron, Tiffany and Company, Cartier uh, usually makes an appearance. And then countless independent designers, everybody from Temple St. Clair, Stephen Webster. I spent a good amount of time with him roaming some of the scruffier shows in the Tucson circuit and just had a good laugh as he told me about his 40th anniversary at the shows, which I think AGTA also celebrated its 40th anniversary, AGTA being the American Gem Trade Association, whose gem fair is kind of the keystone event there at the Tucson Convention Center. The vibe was very good. People were in good moods. And at the high end, despite price increases of about 20 to 30% across the board, the high end demand was very, very steady. In fact, I spoke to numbers of people who had record shows or so they, you know, so they reported kind of midway through, they were having great shows. And I think a number of people, a number of dealers explained that to me as sort of a reflection of Gem's longtime reputation as a store of wealth, as portable wealth, that at the high end, when the economy kind of goes south, people are more inclined to buy gems because they're a hedge against inflation or they're, you know, a way to to keep your wealth in your pocket. And then when the economy is booming, people are just in good moods and want to want to buy gems because they're beautiful and they're obviously status symbols and they go towards beautiful jewelry. So there are these kinds of different scenarios very opposite scenarios where the gem market does very well. And this was an, an example of a year in which even when the economy is a little bit questionable, the gem market, especially at the high end, where there are still supply issues and still a, a lot of scarcity in the marketplace for very fine stones, we saw a lot of dealers feeling very, very happy and very pleased with themselves for a great show. So when you go around a show with somebody like Stephen Webster, or if you, I don't know if you've ever trailed one of these big retail buyers, what kind of things are they looking for? Like, like does Stephen Webster just want to find a really cool stone that will spark his muse? It's a great question. And it, it sort of differs. I've never walked around with anybody from like a QVC or a really big volume retailer. They're clearly looking for calibrated goods, goods that they can count on in terms of supply, which is a real tricky thing with gems. You know, you need a consistent supply. You need to be able to cut them in you know, specific calibrated sizes so they can fit your particular collection. So that's a much different sort of proposition. I, I did walk around with a number of designers this year and Stephen, for example, I mean, he's an unusual sort because he's equally invested in buying rough. They have a rough, the ability to cut rough. And so that was great fun because we went out to Kino, the Kino Gem and Mineral Show, which I mentioned is kind of the scruffiest of Tucson's many, many shows. And that that's quite a title because they're all pretty scruffy unless you're talking about the key events for the high-end faceted stones, which are, again, the Gem Fair by AGTA at the Convention Center, the GJX show at the Tent, which is where the finest international dealers congregate. And then here and there, you've got some really good dealers at, at the Pueblo Gem and Mineral Show, which is at the Ramada Inn nearby. Otherwise, a lot of these shows are really, you know, you'll you'll see literally bins of scrap dusty rocks. You, you have water bottles, spray bottles nearby. And if you're a jeweler who knows what they're doing, you'll walk around and you'll pick up the water bottle, you'll spray the rock and you'll get a little bit of a sense of what it looks like if it polishes up because you really need to kind of clean it off and get the dust off to just get a sense of the color. So when we were at Kino with Steven, he'd literally pick up and he had this great quote. He picked up this hunk of faintly pink stone. It was a Peruvian pink opal. And it looked like there was a slightly darker line of material sandwiched in between the lighter kind of rocky stuff. And he 
picked it up and he said, you know, this bit in between pointing to that darker line of pink, that looks pretty good. But, you know, when you buy rough, it's like buying a whole cow. You're going to end up throwing a lot away. And, you know, you can't really see into these stones. So you're just kind of going on what it looks like on the outside. And he picked it up. And as he was looking at it, he said, you know, sometimes you get what we call angel skin when you're looking at this pink Peruvian opal. And, you know, that's what you want. You want this like blushy light pink. And then other times you get angel's toenail and you open it up and you say for sake oh my god we got we nobody wants that and that's just the beauty and hilarity of Stephen webster who's just got this you know east london accent walking around knows his stuff has been buying rocks for 40 years i walked around with lauren harwell godfrey lauren kessler behind the lauren k line Catherine jetter who owns the vault a wonderful retail store in boston and also robert turner founder of a new brand called jamie turner and they each had their specific their their things they loved robert turner loves zircons he loves savorite he loves some of the the stones you can get a little more bang for your buck loves those green colors but he's not buying emeralds he's buying more brilliant stones and perhaps slightly less expensive but still quite you know quite impactful and then Catherine Jetter she's an opal specialist so she was looking at really fine opals Mahangi spinels that really vibrant almost hot pink pinkish red color that only comes from that Mahangi region of Tanzania a lot of jewelers were looking at those they, a lot of them have their next collection in mind. I mean, that's really what Tucson's about is sourcing stones. And most of them, I think, start with the stones. So it kind of depends on what they find and they build a collection around that. So it was really fun. It was really fun to just be a little bit of a fly on the wall because I just sort of hung back and listened to them asking about prices and sizes and what you can cut from this or that. And uh, it was just, you know, a lot of it was just running commentary. And I think a lot of jewelers get overwhelmed and they end up buying way more than they even anticipated because they just fall in love. So they come home and they realize, wait a minute, I already had a bunch of tanzanites in my safe. Now I've got more. I remember when we had uh, Dave Bindra on, he discussed what he thought would be hot at Tucson any thoughts on what was hot? Was he right? You know, I'd have to remember, I actually spent a good amount of time with Dave because a number of the designers I was walking around were stopping at his booth. So I think he had a really great show. I emailed with him briefly after Tucson. I don't exactly recall what his rundown was, but I do think he talked about a lot of these sunset and sunrise colors, pinkish, orangey stones like the Mahangi Spinel, or a little bit more towards the Padparasha Sapphire Range, Imperial Topaz, even Lavender Spinel. If you just imagine some of the colors you see in a beautiful flaming sort of sunset or sunrise, those colors did very well. So that I think was bore out what he talked about when he was on our show. There was also a lot of interest in demantoid garnet and Russia is famously known for its demantoid garnets. They've got these signature horse tail inclusions and demantoid from Russia is apparently also very hot at the moment, but of course supplies are complicated. So there is a new demantoid supplier. We've actually had him on the podcast, John Ferry, of Prosperity Earth, which is a miner in Madagascar, kind of a one-stop shop. They both mine and cut some of the material. And there was a growing interest in his goods. Stephen particularly talked about those Madagascar demantoid garnets. There was also interest in, in a brand new, well, brand new, it's been, a, a, I guess, around for at least a couple of years, a peridot mine in China, in Northwest China, called 
Fuli gemstones, F-U-L-I, that was for the first time exhibited in Tucson at the GJX show. They've got a really steady supply of goods. They're promising a lot of sustainability, traceability measures. And that kind of green, again, is just getting more interest. I'm thinking slightly more vibrant, less classic greens than you might find in an emerald. So both the sunrise and sunset colors and on the flip side, these kind of vibrant apple greens. So I think those are all good bets. And of course, I think pastels do pretty well in general because sometimes they're just more affordable. You know, the really saturated classic blues that you might find in sapphires are very expensive. So a lot of designers will go for slightly less saturated, lighter pastel shades, and they do well with those because they're just more reasonably priced. If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews help make them possible. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jewelry District wherever you may listen. And now, back to the show. Clearly, the diamond market makes all the difference in terms of what kind of moods people are in. And as of today, I read an interesting, well, a few interesting stories about De Beers, but I know you've got a few things to say there, Rob. Tell us what's newsworthy in the world of diamonds and De Beers. Yeah, so there's a lot going on with not just De Beers, but with Russia, which is the other big diamond supplier, which I'll get to in a second. But De Beers and Botswana signed a 10-year deal in 2011. And that was the deal that moved all the diamond sales from London to Botswana, which was a, you know, pretty much changed how the industry works as far as, you know, where it goes and gets diamonds. And it kind of forms a new hub in the Botswana's capital of Gaborone. So they had this 10-year deal and it had run out in 2021 and it's now been extended twice. And the kind of cliche or the common saying is that De Beers and Botswana are like Siamese twins and that they're both extremely dependent on each other. Botswana is obviously known for being very dependent on its diamond revenues and De Beers, you know, Botswana is its biggest producer and, and really one of the biggest producer in its stable. And it's it's one of the reasons why it's still a dominant force in the industry. And, uh, you know, I, I would say in general, the De Beers-Botswana partnership, and it's not just, I should say it's not just De Beers and Botswana. There's a few companies who mine diamonds in Botswana. But, uh, you know, as with all situations, there's, there's uh, sometimes tension and this is, there's big money involved and uh, there's a fate of an entire country involved. So there's been a lot of tension uh, renegotiating this contract. And last week, Botswana's president, Masisi, who was a guest at the JCK show a couple years ago, if you remember. Mm-hmm. So this the, the contract ran out in 2021. It's now been extended twice. It's going to run out again in uh, June. And uh, last week, uh, Masisi said the following. He said, if we don't achieve a win-win situation, each party will have to pack its bags and go. He said the diamonds are, are making a lot of profit and uh, the previous agreement has not been beneficial to us. So he's kind of insinuating that this relationship, which again has been huge for both Botswana and De Beers, that this relationship could be, as they say, on the rocks. I mean, it's uh, the fact that it's been extended twice has already raised eyebrows. And now you have uh, the president of the country making these kind of comments. Last week, I spoke to De Beers' outgoing CEO, Bruce Cleaver, and I asked him about the contract because he's stepping down without the contract being signed. And he said, I fully expect it to be signed before June. Now, just this morning, I spoke to the chief financial officer of De Beers, who is now saying, I can't guarantee it'll be signed before June, but I hope to have some progress this year. 
So there's something going on. There's clearly some tension. At the end of the day, it's in both parties' interest to make some kind of deal. Do you have a sense of, or can you shed some light on what the tension might be around? Like, what are the key issues? You know, it's not very clear. I would assume the kind of perpetual source of tension is Botswana's desire for more downstream activities. So a bigger presence in cutting, you know, make sure that bigger diamonds are all cut within the country. And I assume fundamentally it comes down to money. Botswana wants a bigger share of its diamond revenues. Now, we should note that the way the current deal is structured, I believe most of the money does, in fact, go to Botswana. I I believe 80% of the money goes to Botswana. You know, a lot of people would say it's getting a very good deal, but, you know, negotiations are about driving the best deal possible. It's certainly understandable why a person would want the best for his country. You know, this is what negotiations are about. I read an interesting article in... uh, Bloomberg Business Week that made the point that, you know, to extend, uh, you know, one of Juaneng, which is the big uh, Botswana diamond mine, is going to cost $5 billion. Wow. And it made the point that, you know, Anglo-American, which owns the beers, can fund a capital project at that scale. So while the Juan is essential to the beers, it's just another division at Anglo, which can deploy its capital into a range of commodities and countries. So I would guess at the end of the day, they're going to they're gonna make some kind of deal, but it's been a far uglier and more drawn up process than I think people expected. Hmm. Gosh, I remember you just reminded me of the time I visited Zhuaneng, which was back in 2006, and it was quite a sight to see. It was an incredible experience to be at the central pit of the most valuable diamond mine in the world. I'm not sure if that's still the case, but it was then. All right, well, we'll stay tuned for more news on that. You also mentioned Russia. What is the latest, especially in light of this year year anniversary of the war in Ukraine? So, you know, it's possible that I might know the answer to some of these questions by the time this podcast is posted. But right now, things seem very unclear as far as what's going to happen with diamonds. As I'm sure most JCK readers and podcast listeners know, Russian diamonds are officially sanctioned in the United States, but there's this quote-unquote loophole where they can be mined in Russia, but if they're cut in India, they are not considered Russian diamonds because of this substantial transformation law. So there's a lot of efforts out there to increase sanctions on Russia with this thing going on a year. There's been a lot of pressure on Belgium to ban Russian diamonds in the EU specifically, and it hasn't because Belgium has balked repeatedly saying this is, you know, these diamonds will just go to Dubai And uh, what's the point? The latest uh, scheme I've heard, and this is something that I definitely know has been talked about in certain circles, is that the United States might decide it's going to remove the substantial transformation loophole that allows Russian diamonds in the market. And what might happen, and this would be a huge change and possibly a huge burden for the industry, is that people would have to declare that their diamonds aren't Russian. And they would have to show some kind of evidence that their diamonds did not come from Russia. Now, as we know, that's not easy. That's not always available. And it's going to be extremely tricky. But that's the road that they might take. And that, and actually, Belgium actually likes that solution because it feels that it's more of an even playing field with some of its rival centers like Dubai. Because if things just go to Dubai and then to India and then to the United States, then Belgium loses out. But if, if 
If it's a lot harder for Russian diamonds to come into the United States, it's more of a even playing field. So that's something that could happen. And, it's, and I, I would guess it's something at some point likely will happen, some variation of that. It's going to be a big change. It's going to be a big deal in the industry. Uh, you know, people say it probably won't happen all at once, that they'll have bigger diamonds and, you know, wouldn't necessarily apply to, to Melly. But yeah, it's going to be a big deal. And um, last week, uh, I got a hold of some of the latest Kimberly process stats that show that Russia keeps exporting diamonds, you know, even with all the sanctions, that their sales seem to be going okay. I mean, they're not going great. The beer sales are much, much better. So they've definitely lost a lot of money because of the war. But, you know, have they decreased as much as people would hope? Uh, I don't think they have. Because the diamond industry will always have lots of intrigue and drama. Maybe that's just the very nature of uh, diamonds. I feel like every time they're in a movie, there's drama, there's a heist of some form, there's relationships where they go back and forth and Maybe that's just the nature of these valuable precious stones. Let's let's shift. We just have a few minutes, and I know the news about artificial intelligence, AI, chat, GPT, everything is just out there in the world. I think all of us have been exposed to way more discussion of AI than we expected just in a few short weeks. You used chat GPT recently to write a poem. Tell us about it. I like most people have been kind of fascinated and somewhat appalled by uh, chat GPT. So I've been using it. Uh, I wrote this blog about whether lab-grown diamonds are mining-free, and it, it wrote a really, I said, write it in the style of Dr. Seuss, and it uh, did a great job. I mean, I, what's amazing is you know, not that this is a brilliant work of art or anything like that, but it's perfectly coherent. It's perfectly acceptable. And it was done in three seconds. So um, it goes, starts, oh, the term mining free, it sounds so grand, but let's look at closer. Let's take a stand for labeling something as such can be a trap and lead to misconceptions and a big mishap. And it goes on. I mean, it, there's five paragraphs and they're all perfectly you know, amusing and, and well done. And it even shows kind of a sophisticated understanding of, of some of the issues, which is, I mean, it's just, it's, it's startling. And you, you, you certainly would not expect that a, a bot produced this in, in three seconds. And I, I also spoke to um, David uh, Sherwood, who's the head of Daniel's Jewelers. And he said, he's like a big chat GBT enthusiast. I'm a little lyrier, but you know, I also recognize that it's, Kind of here to stay, and he he used it to brainstorm a slogan, and he actually used it. It you know it was I think it was bling it. So he said come up with a cool Valentine's Day slogan. So it spat out bling it, and he said okay that's all right that'll work. Well, speaking of, and maybe this is a good place to land. I I recently did have a conversation with, and this is where AI does play a role in impersonating people. And I I will talk about this more later because I do have a New York Times story coming out around it. But have you are you familiar with deep fake videos and deep fake Tom Cruise? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not that particular thing, but yes, I know what deep fake is. Well, so there is an a uh, former actor who has a startling similarity it, it named Miles Fisher. He looks a lot like Tom Cruise. And he launched an account on TikTok called Deepfake Tom Cruise, where they use, I guess, AI to create these deepfake videos. And I had a really great chat with him about, you know, it, it's really about the watch industry because he's a watch lover. And I paired him in conversation with Edward Maylon, the CEO of H. Moser, which is a company that has really experimented a lot with the metaverse and the NFTs. Uh, 
traditional watch brand, but isn't afraid to, to go there. So I'll, I'll follow up on that maybe after Geneva when this piece runs. But yeah, I mean, for jewelry, luckily, I don't think our, our jobs are at stake just yet because clearly ChatGPT is not going to go out and have 10 different conversations with sources out in the world of whatever category you're reporting on and, and synthesize those into a coherent thousand word story. So not yet, at least. I, I think I think it might be able to to... I don't know if it could have the conversations, but I think it actually might do a decent job of synthesizing. And that's, that's the unsettling part. All right. Well, always, always great to chat with you, Rob, and uh, look forward to, to our next one as always. Thanks everyone. Thanks for listening. Take care, everybody. Any views expressed in this podcast do not reflect the opinion of JCK, its management or its advertisers. Thanks for listening. We hope you join us next time on the Jewelry District by JCK. Jewelry District.